listening to the podcast Advertising Playbook, your resource to better understand and execute successful podcast ad campaigns. Hello, and welcome to the podcast Advertising Playbook. I'm your host, Heather Osgood. And today on the program, I have two special guests, which I'm really excited about because as you guys know, oftentimes I just talk to one, but you get twice as much fun today. So super excited. We have Jennifer Lane. Jennifer is the head of brand responsibility, innovation, and special projects at Oxford Road. We also have Tamara Nelson. She is the co-founder and CEO at Barometer. Welcome to the program. Hi, happy to be here. Hi. So great to have both of you here today. And on the program, we're going to be really focusing today on brand safety. It's certainly a term that everyone is talking about. And I will say, even just for myself at True Native Media, we work through a lot of agencies like Oxford Road, but we also do a fair amount of direct selling. And this is something that is coming up over and over again. I know the other day I was actually talking to a sugar company, which felt a little bit obscure, and he was very concerned about brand safety. So it's definitely a topic that comes up in the space. And I think it comes up so often because we're dealing with all of these independent voices and we don't know what we're getting with these independent voices. Some of them could be good, maybe some not as good. So, Jennifer, I was just curious, um, because you're interfacing so much with advertisers at Oxford Road, can you tell us a bit about what brands are saying to you? What are some of their concerns? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's probably valuable to take a step back and sort of look at how this transition has happened, because even four years ago, five years ago, stakeholder capitalism wasn't really something that a lot of people were talking about. It was a pretty fundamental shift that happened really or like hit a fever pitch, I would say, in 2020 amongst the other significant happenings in 2022. But before then, brands sort of didn't have to worry as much about consumer backlash. It wasn't necessarily as public or as visible as it is today. And sort of like the rise of millennial and Gen Z, where citizen activism is a, is a serious thing and everybody is really paying attention to it in ways that maybe our our predecessors weren't paying attention to it as actively and maybe it just wasn't as visible. But We really saw as an agency a switch in 2020 where brands were getting some pretty significant backlash if they were sponsoring content or shows where the audience felt that that brand's values or their values weren't reflected in the audience or the host. And so they would sort of get active on Twitter, get active on Instagram, get active on Facebook and call these brands out for sponsoring specific shows, whether they were shows that were right-leaning or left-leaning politically or shows that were spreading misinformation or the list goes on and on, but it it really ignited this charge where brands had to sit down and map out sort of what are our values. They knew what they were in other ways. Maybe they knew their values when it came to manufacturing products, but that didn't extend all the way to their advertising decisions. And they really had to map those out through to what type of content do we sponsor? What type of content do we collaborate with? And they looked to agencies like ours for help in that way. And that's Sort of, I know we'll get into this with tomorrow, but that's where we realized we didn't have a lot of tools that were able to do that at scale. And so we can help them map out their values and ask the right questions to have them begin to formulate the right answers. But once we had the answers, we didn't know how to action them in a in a really immediate way. And so we started, and I, I won't 
spill the beans on what tomorrow is doing at Barometer, although everybody already knows because it's an in-market solution. But we realized there were tools in social media. Of course, there were tools that were in place on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube that helped advertisers understand what was in content before sponsoring it. But podcast was sort of just a black box and a it was so behind a brick wall. So we didn't have access to transcripts. We didn't have access to detecting those transcripts. So historically, it was just listening to thousands and thousands of hours of content to make a subjective decision about whether or not this show could be good based on past experience. And like we have dozens of clients spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So you couldn't possibly, I mean, the team that we had to build out to dedicate towards that was just not able to keep up in a meaningful way. And so that's when we started working with Tamara because brands were asking us questions like, is this risky? Is this host going to say something that will make our customers mad? Is this host going to say something that will put our brand in the front and center of media in a way that's negative? And we weren't really able to answer those questions quantitatively. We didn't have any data. And we knew that it was something that we needed to do in order to serve our brands well and sort of guide them into the right buying decisions, not just from a performance standpoint, but now from a value standpoint. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I feel like that is such a great summary of kind of where we've come in podcasting from that place where it seems like, as you said, kind of prior 2020, people didn't seem like they really paid as much attention. But then as there was this backlash, then there's so much focus on it. I know that there is definitely a difference between brand safety and brand suitability. Tamara, I was wondering if you could kind of explain to us what is the difference when we're considering those two? Yeah, I think a part of it comes down to semantics and like the history of the terms and how they evolved. And so the concept is pretty old concept, but particularly around 2019, uh, the Global Alliance for Responsible Media or GARM was created as a working group within the World Federation of Advertisers. And they actually defined a framework for brand safety and brand suitability. And so those are the definitions that I'm going to reference. But their definition for brand safety, they called it the brand safety floor. And they basically outlined 12 categories and a specific definition of what is below the floor or not brand safe. And this was like content that should not be monetized by anybody. And this was created in response to major advertising running on a YouTube video with first person terrorism content. And so obviously that was terrible. It wasn't like it was a news show that picked up a video and was commenting on it. It was like the original video. And then YouTube had rev shared with terrorism group. So that was a wake-up call for the community saying like open web, there's user-generated content out there that we have to be accountable for. And so here's these 12 categories and they're things that you might already be familiar with like adult content, like profanity, debated sensitive social issues, which is like political or debated issues, crime, death, like hate speech, and now most recently misinformation. And they define like this level, which they called brand not safe, is content that shouldn't be monetized by anybody. And it's a very low bar. There's very little gray area there. It's literally like illegal content. Like, for example, for the adult category, it's very dark. Like the below the floor is literally like distributing illegal child pornography. It's a very non like non easy to confuse. Like it's very, right. very black and white. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Whereas brand suitability that has a little bit more room for interpretation. And so the next level, once you're above the floor, then there's three possible levels that the content could have for each of the 12 categories. And each of those levels is also defined. Um, the other tricky bit was that it was originally defined for display. So for example, high level for adult content was originally defined as full nudity. Well, like what's full nudity in audio? 
And so going through that process of making those definitions and developing taxonomy around high, medium, and low for each of the categories based on the GARM definitions, but also informed by external sources, like how do you keep up with the new debated sensitive social issues? So to get back to the question, I think at a high level, the difference between brand safety and brand suitability is that brand safety is a binary and brand suitability is a spectrum. And brand suitability is not something that's inherently a property of the content. The content has different things in it, but the judgment of whether or not it's suitable or unsuitable can only be made in the context of a brand's preferences and values. Right. Yeah. And speaking to that from the brand side, I think sort of a, a easier way to visualize this or explain it from our perspective is alcohol, as an example. There are many podcasts that talk about alcohol and casual drinking and throwing parties and whatnot. And some of our brands, align with that content very well. It feeds into their community lifestyle. It feeds into how their customers or their consumers are behaving. And other brands actually have to stay away from it because it isn't safe for their customers. It doesn't fit with the values that they've stated. Maybe it's a charitable organization. Maybe it's a different organization that has sort of conservative values, whereas that isn't a brand safety issue necessarily in the way that we're talking about it, but it is a suitability issue where they don't want to be aligned with casual drinking or they don't want to be aligned with marijuana as another example, whereas it's legal in some states and it's not. So for many brands, it's gray area. So that's what brand suitability means from the brand standpoint. And Tamara and our team have done such an incredible job of being able to offer a tool where we now have transparency into the data behind sort of seeing it, seeing how it appears and understanding it, and then sharing that with our clients and saying, we want to recommend this show because of XYZ, or we don't want to recommend this show because of XYZ. Yeah, absolutely. Tamara, I know last time you were on the show, you had brought up that Garm really wasn't created for audio and that you were taking some steps and trying to get that all redefined. How far has that come? Is GARM in a better place now where you can look at those um, standards and apply them to audio? That's a really good question. I think, first of all, it's been really cool to become a part of GARM and to attend the solution developer working groups and the community working groups and meet with other measurement vendors who are answering the same questions and trying to get clarity around similar things. There are a couple more audio uh, members so there's definitely more attention being shown to the audio side. The tricky bit is it took many years and many lawyers and many thousands and thousands of dollars for everybody to sign off on those original definitions. And so what we've kind of come to is a shared understanding that, yes, they're limited because of display. And there's certain things that could be reworded, like instead of depictions, you could say depictions or discussions. So we tried to adhere as closely as we could to the original GARM components, and we've contributed our own definitions to the GARM group for their like review. And basically, we're working through a very long process. It's unclear when or if ever all of the definitions will be included for all media types in the basic framework. But there's definitely a bigger awareness now in the community about the importance of having more specific definitions for audio and mm -hmm. that there are other media types now that are embracing the framework. And I think that everybody's very excited on both sides. The GARM community is excited that audio is embracing their own framework. And then we're excited too that we're being met with that inclusion and acceptance. So it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I know that that's amazing. And to kind of get back to the suitability point, I think, Jennifer, what you're saying makes so much sense in that you know, you have to, as a brand, look at what you're the image essentially that you're trying to create. And if the podcast, the content doesn't align with the image you're trying to create, 
how much are you really portraying that? So I guess one of the things that I'm curious about is how much gray would you say there is out there? Because one of the benefits of podcast advertising is that it is kind of like influencer marketing, right? And you could have a brand that maybe does target a variety of different, maybe kind of subgroups of, of individuals, or maybe they align with this messaging. You know, it's like I think a little bit about BetterHelp, right? So you've got BetterHelp and they have a certain brand, but then I know that they also have their faith-based BetterHelp program, right? So within one company, you could have a variety of different maybe products or almost genres that you're trying to reach or trying to speak to different verticals of people. As an advertiser, how can an advertiser, I guess, kind of navigate the landscape and say, yes, this makes sense because and, you know, obviously that's where Barometer comes in, which, which is going through all of this content. But how can a brand say, yes, this is the type of content that I want to align myself with? What is what's a good strategy for that? Well, million dollar question. And it's hard, right, because you're only judging based on past performance. And so there will always be outlier scenarios because there is so much gray that exists in influencer marketing. And it is, as you say, it's very much influencer marketing. But in addition to that, it's a very intimate medium. I mean, I think it goes without saying everybody knows that podcast is the most intimate medium. They're in your ears. They're in your head. You feel like they're your best friends mm -hmm. um, or you at least have a good relationship and know these people. And so that is one of the biggest benefits and strengths that comes with it. But it's also a risk. And you trust based on track record and each of the networks and the podcast hosts and the producers that we work with on a consistent basis. We have ongoing conversations with when a new brand decides to sponsor the show, someone from our creative team reaches out to them and has a personal conversation because we also know that live reads work better than baked in ads, mm -hmm. right? If it's pre-recorded, there's only so much elasticity done to what they're saying and to have it organically fit in. But when a host just goes straight into their own personal reasons for liking something and you get longer reads, you get more personal reads, you get reads that come across is more genuine to the audience and the trust has to be high because you're trusting some person with your brand, with your collateral to communicate a message in a way that feels representative to you and representative to them. And there's always going to be a little bit of gray because we're all humans and we all want to make those conversations happen in a way that is genuine to us. And back to my point on track record, like an example that I think shows just how tricky this is to navigate is when Lex Friedman had Kanye West on his show. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Lex Friedman's track record based on all the data that Tamar and Barometer were able to provide with all of the nuance with host intelligence built in, you really look at that track record and it was strong. And we put some of our biggest and arguably some of our most conservative brands on Lex Friedman based on all of that data. And mm -hmm. then he has Kanye on the show. So we always try to say no matter how much data we have, no matter how strong of a relationship we have with our hosts, things can still happen. And then it's more about the steps you take afterward and the actions you take next. So I think the only way that brands, agencies, advertisers can really navigate this well is being aware of the realities, having a plan in place for when those outlier events happen, when those gray areas turn into red areas. And to know what to do immediately. So 
you don't burn your audience, so you don't burn your relationships, so you're not put in a position where you're sponsoring bad content and you have immediate steps that you that you predetermine, but also doing the research. So, I mean, everybody wishes they had a silver bullet and everybody wishes that they had all the tools to navigate that sort of erroneously or in an error-proof way, but the world is the world and influencers are influencers. And that's why we love them because sometimes they say stuff that's totally right. out of the blue. Right. And we love them for it sometimes and we hate them for it sometimes. And so it's a risk that you take, but it's a risk that we try to be very, very transparent about from the beginning. And again, we work with each brand to have an action plan to make sure when this happens, because inevitably it will, these are the steps that we're going to take to navigate this in the best way possible for all parties involved. Yeah. And I feel like you you bring up so many good points, which is podcasts are this very dynamic personal medium. And the reason that we like them, as you said, like it's fun to listen to a show. Granted, it's all pre-recorded, but it's it feels more spontaneous. It feels more organic. It feels more real. And part of the effectiveness of advertising is getting that alignment right and getting that audience to relate to the product in a way that they're relating to the podcast. And so there's just so much power in that. And for me, I feel like it's just so important that we don't strip that away. And I'm sure if you've been in media or advertising for any time, you have seen how it seems like things just become more sterile and more sterile and more sterile to the point where you're like, oh my gosh, what are we even doing here, right? Yeah, no, it's, it turns completely vanilla and you push right. it there and then it stops working and you're like, why isn't this working anymore? But I mean, we tell our, our clients too, you're leveraging this, you can't punish them for it in the same way. I mean, obviously there are outlier scenarios where specific and direct action needs to take place. But if somebody says something that is sort of gray, but not bad, like that's why their audience listens to them. And that's the audience that you want that you're going after. So you just have to trust and sort of remain clear headed and look at it objectively and, and weigh the positives with the negatives and make a decision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that's why having tools like Barometer is so amazing, because we're not just having to rely on ourselves to make that call. We can go through. And I feel like at True Native, we represent about 100 different podcasts and podcasters come to us on a very regular basis and say, hey, do you want to represent our show? And we'll look at their podcast, right? We look at them. We try to go back into their feed and see the type of content that they have created. But we're not going to listen to every episode, right? Like we don't know, like what if they had talked about something a year ago that was extremely inflammatory that we wouldn't have wanted to represent? Yeah. And one step further, it's actually not just that, right? Like you also have to do a very extensive Google search because most of the drama that happens with podcast hosts happens outside of podcast and they're not talking about it in their show. So you wouldn't necessarily know unless you did the Google search, which is why the team at Barometer has created such an invaluable tool in their host intelligence system. Yeah. So tell us about that tomorrow, because I, I don't know that I was as aware of that host intelligent piece. And I find that really interesting. Yeah. So we kept getting feedback similar to what Jennifer was saying about how it was somebody's job to literally listen to episodes. It was also somebody's job to Google hosts and have Google alerts and go mine all of the Internet dark spaces for any discussions of controversies related to these hosts. And what we had noticed was, yes, of course, there were some times when the brand suitability mismatch was because of alignment with content. 
when the content didn't appear aligned with the brand's values or standards for that particular campaign. But in many cases, the content was totally chilling. It was totally fine, perfectly aligned with their standards. And it was something that happened on Twitter that the host said or did or something that was totally, like Jennifer said, outside of the context of their show. And they would never mention it on their show. Like the Chrisley's stuff that happened, they never talked about that on their show. Um, and so when when all of that went down, like the host score for them was very low. So the way that we do our host intelligence is we think of it kind of like Q scores for creators. Um, and so you can basically track all of the hosts. And what we do is we track them across 80,000 different premium and non-premium news sources that we license and pay to get access to the premium feeds for. And then we basically query those feeds for discussions related to the hosts using their names and then a process for making sure it's the right version of that name and finding all of the articles that talked about them every day. And then what we do is we find within those articles, all the sentences that mentioned or referenced the hosts, we score each of those sentences based on a sentiment model that we trained ourselves on news data. And so we get like between negative one and one for each sentence. And then what we do is we basically make this weighted score for each article based on the combination of all of the sentences and where, like if it's in the title, that's going to have a higher weight because more people are going to see it. So the goal of the host intelligence solution isn't just to be like a raw sentiment score. You can have an article about a movie premiere, but if it's referencing Will Smith getting slapped and the person of interest is Will Smith or Will Smith performing the slap, excuse me, then it's still going to be negative about Will Smith. So what we're looking for is that targeted sentiment about the person in the content over time. And then what we're able to plot is a day by day change of their sentiment on like a waveform. So you can click on anything that was below zero, basically, and be like, what happened there? And then it'll take you to that point in the table. Our whole deal is transparency. So you can see all the articles that we flagged, the individual sentiment scores for each article. You can click in and see the article and go read it for yourself. You can Apple F, but you don't have to because we basically did it for you. Um, and so that's the idea with that. One of the imperative elements for us as an agency, and there are a million strengths in Barometer, of course, but... They are completely unbiased. And so to that point on sentiment, there are a million different ways that you can interpret it. But the only right way to interpret it is directly and letting the brand and the agency interpret it in ways that are true to their values. Because <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of everyone's my truth. I, I think that gets into a gray area. But I think specifically here, it's very applicable because something that might be true for a better health, like you said, a better health wouldn't necessarily be true for like Corona as an example. And so the ability to be able to just look at something very objectively and then as a brand ingest it and internalize it to understand what it means for them is critical because if there were any sort of objectivity or bias built into that score based on preference or what their understanding of safety is, would make it impossible for us to be able to use it in a meaningful way. And for us, like, it's really important to be able to learn from actual advertiser preferences and examples, because one might think, oh, it's just so easy. You set high, medium, low and off to the races you go. But really, it's a lot more nuanced. And it might be like for this, like to your point about certain brands having multiple different types of campaigns, like for this brand, there might be some global values like we will never want to sponsor any content with racism. But for this particular campaign, we might have really specific things that adhere to this audience, like they're not going to want to hear profanity. And maybe for a different campaign, even for the same brand, they can have profanity. And maybe it gets even more nuanced. Maybe it's like, maybe for that first campaign, they could have profanity if it's in comedy, but not if it's in other contexts. 
Or a really common one that we get is we're really okay with true crime having high levels of death and crime, but we're really not okay with other genres. And so part of this is getting to see, there's two things that you can see. First, you can see the direct impact of your decisions on reach. In the barometer platform, every time you move a filter, the whole show set changes. And so you get to see, like, if I remove profanity, I'm going to lose 75% of my reach. And then the second thing is, once you get to see the performance data, historically, we've been a little bit more like pre-campaign and post-campaign, but we've been getting more in-flight. So as you can see the data daily on like, I ran on this episode, this is how many impressions I got. This was the properties of that episode. And then maybe you might learn over time uh-huh. that your preferences can change based on how you're actually doing. Yeah. And you might get a signal that's like, for profanity, you tend to do better with shows that have more profanity. Maybe that's not one you're going to be really upset about. Yeah. Right. No, and you and you may have not known that either. I mean, to Tamara's point, integrating previous historic data into our client dashboards as well, we've been able to open up new audiences for our clients based on whether we're able to track it with a pixel or different tools that that are built in Perometer and other third parties. But that is the biggest add for us is having more exposure into where the performance is happening, both from a values perspective and from a performance perspective. And one can't be weighed more highly than the other. And we have been able to talk client, not talk clients into, that's actually not the right word. We've been able to show data to clients mm-hmm. that lets them understand, oh, actually, I had I had cut out news as a category entirely because it felt too risky. But you know what? Actually, I'm seeing these performance results. I'm seeing our audience actually through surveys in market, et cetera, like we're learning that our audience isn't upset if we sponsor certain types of news and those channels perform really well for us. So we're able to align our business objectives with our brand values in a meaningful way and open up channels that were historically closed off because we had to make cuts by genre due to the lack of tools to provide transparency into those types of performance results. I think that that is really super fascinating. I just think about profanity and I have grown up in an environment where profanity was like a big, big no-no. That was my whole life in existence. But I think like, oh my gosh, it's everywhere now. Like it is so super prevalent. And if, especially I think if you're a very maybe longstanding or older company and that was like a, maybe just one of your internal kind of even thought processes, right? That like, oh, you cannot have any profanity. But then you find like, oh, I have no idea what percentage of the population use profanity now, but I would say it's got to be 75%, if not higher, right? I mean, it just feels so super prevalent. And so if that is something that you're saying, oh, no, we can't have any of that. But then maybe you find in running a campaign that you actually perform better on campaigns that have profanity. I mean, well, and profanity has so many layers to it. So many layers. Obviously, I mean, I'm not going to start lighting up your show with curse words, but there are different levels of severity when it comes to profanity. And so if you cut it in its entirety, you may be losing out on profanity that is pretty non-offensive to the majority of audiences in general, let alone likely non-offensive to your audience, but you didn't know. (laughs) And that's partially why we make a distinction. Like there's the category of profanity, but there's also separately the category of hate speech. So like you could still avoid hate speech and run on things that have profanity. And also sometimes there's differences, like part of this kind of 
aversion in advertisers to profanity is historically rooted in regulated advertising channels. Right. So channels where you can't swear. And so mm-hmm. as a result, you never had to deal with this in the first place because it was the job of the content. And a common like thing that people ask us is like, when you like, say you're switching from a podcast to a radio show, you might need to bleep out your show to host it on the air. So there's a lot of differences between podcast and other media types. But also, I think that sometimes the preferences, there's a difference between brands whose preferences for their values are just preferences, uh, whether it's purpose driven or whatever, that's just like their values. And then others. Yeah. Or like history driven. It's just how they've always done it. So it's what they're planning. Yes, exactly. Versus like legal requirements. Say you're pharma brand or you're a fintech brand and you're regulated and like you legally can't be next to content that's of a certain type. That brings in a totally new level of like scrutiny and quality, like care that is Mm -hmm. needed. And so I think that's a potential huge win for the podcasting industry is to be able to bring confidence to those brands that are literally legally precluded from participating if there's no way for them to screen for this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I love that that you guys brought up is one of the concerns that I have is I love the open source nature of podcasting. And I love that anybody with a mic and a computer can create a podcast and I can share all of my beliefs and all of my thoughts. And I don't want to get too much into the political side of things, but I do feel like, especially in America, free speech is such a big thing here. And I like that people feel like they have a voice and and maybe marginalized individuals can come forward and share their thoughts and their beliefs without being persecuted. Well, they may be persecuted, but I mean, but they can still create it, right? They can still have the right to disseminate this information. And so I do find sometimes when we talk about brand safety, I hate this idea of dialing back that element because I don't want to take this, you know, wonderful open kind of platform and say, okay, we're going to put all these restrictions on just so that you can make money. You know, if you really want to monetize through ads, then you can't do X, Y, and Z. And like we were talking about earlier, then you come up with this very vanilla, you know, place, which nobody really wants. So I love what you're saying that on Barometer, there's a level of control and that there isn't a bias. Like you had mentioned, obviously there's the floor, right? And so there are certain things that as a society and GARM, everybody has determined, yes, like hate speech, that is not acceptable, period. But then there's all the gray, right? And as an advertiser, being able to go in and say, okay, I want to filter out for this thing, then you you have a lot of control in what you're looking at. So I guess um, if you could speak a little bit more to that, um, how are you putting stop gaps in place, I guess, to make sure that there isn't maybe that censorship of information. Yes, absolutely. This is where tomorrow would say, like, hold my beer. (laughs) (laughs) This is low-key, almost high-key, one of my biggest soapboxes. Like, I literally grew up in the old Soviet Union. Like, I grew up in the Ukraine watching Channel One state-sponsored news. So I'm, like, Mm. really passionate about freedom of speech and freedom of information. I think that In America, we have the First Amendment, which is amazing, and it defines all of the types of speech that are protected. So there's nine categories of speech that are unprotected, and they include things like incitement and um, hate speech of certain types. And so I think it's really important for our definitions to reference 
things like the First Amendment and have that connection to what makes America so cool. And to your point, like the last thing that we would ever want to do is change the way that people are representing their authentic truths in how they show up in their podcast. And that's why we resist the urge to do things like make values judgments and say this is good or bad. What we say is this might be perfect for one brand and not perfect for another, but that's not a property of your content. Um, so I think that's really important. And another thing that's worth noting is as we think about brand safe versus brand unsafe, the context is such an important piece of it. So going back to that example of the ISIS video on YouTube versus that same video in a detailed op-ed on NPR or insert it's CNN, like a real publisher that is covering the story, right? That immediately creates a different context that isn't in that original piece of content. So we have yet to have scored some podcast from somebody in their basement who's a white supremacist who's actually putting out that meat compared to somebody who has a podcast where they're talking about racism. Mm-hmm. Like there's a big distinction there. And so we have actually yet to have scored a single podcast that was below the floor. We haven't scored one yet. Really? Yeah. Okay. We've only scored the top 10,000. I mean, top is a loose term, <laughs> but advertiser requested shows like those are the shows that we've scored so far. And all of those have been above the floor. That is well, great. And, yeah. And to your point earlier about protecting podcast, I mean, it's I think it's safe to say it's no longer in its infancy in many ways, but in many ways it still is. And our founder and CEO, Dan Granger, came from radio and our agency has now been around for 10 years. And we've I mean, we say we're the very first podcast agency. And I think in almost every way that's true. Maybe all the ways it's true, but I don't want to make your show a misinformation score, of course. But I mean, we, there are certain parts of podcasts in the whole industry that are still very much cowboy town and we love that and we never want to ruin it. And Dan and the agency are very fierce in protecting those decisions. Obviously, we don't want to hold the industry back, but in certain ways, we need to protect it into from becoming that vanilla channel, from having too many tools that tell mm-hmm. you what to do. And and that's one of the reasons why we we are such huge fans of Barometer and, and so many other tools in the space as well. But they are not applying rules. They're not applying regulations. They're not sort of bringing the audience to, um, to a, a channel that is going to be lesser. They're bringing an audience to a channel that will be richer because it's a perfect marrying of content and partners. And that is what will continually lead to the success of this space. And it's something that we're really passionate about. It's something that Barometer is really passionate about. And, and obviously other people in the industry as well. But we don't want podcasts to become radio. We don't want podcasts to become anything other than what made it famous and what made it so popular from the beginning. And that's just completely accessible to anybody who wants to put out a show to talk about anything at any time from anywhere with people who want to listen. And as long as we keep that as our North Star, we think we can make decisions in the right way to sort of protect against people turning it into something maybe that's a little bit less free and um, and intimate. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. there's a lot to what you said there, Jennifer, about how you you as humans who are knowledgeable about the space can make judgments with the data that you couldn't have made without the data. But it's not like the data is replacing your guidance, your expertise, your right. years of knowledge about what works and what doesn't work. 
And so I think as an AI company, like we're not trying to become an AGI. We're just trying to become like a really useful tool for people to use and remove some of the bias and participate in more data-driven decision-making by people. I just want to put that out there because right now in the time of like intelligent machines and all of these AIs popping up, I think it's important to be realistic about like, what are the strengths of machine learning approaches? And the strengths of machine learning approaches are consistency, basically controlled biases. You can't ever not have any bias, but you can know what the bias is because you know what data you train the models with. You know you have rigorous standards for how to benchmark the performance of the models over time so that they can best serve the people who use them. I think that's kind of our mission. Yeah, and this becomes even more interesting and even more relevant when when expanding beyond just the U.S. I know mm-hmm. Tamara and her team are expanding, doing a lot of work in Mexico with podcast channels as well and is in Europe. And that's when it becomes even more significant to your point earlier, whereas like there's a lot of nuance and a lot of gray area and the right messaging for the right audience in the right ways. And this is where those decisions become very, very pivotal and very key. Yeah, absolutely. I was so fascinated about how AI and its developments are impacting you at Barometer because, you know, we're recording this in May of 2023. And obviously, Barometer has been using AI. But over the last couple months, like AI has just blown up. And I guess I'm just curious if you feel like it's changing your approach any or if there are, I don't know, new tools that you're using. What is your take? I know you kind of just gave us the download, and I totally agree that that's the benefit of AI. Um, although yeah. I did just hear that ChatGPT like can lie to you based on what you want to hear, which makes me a little concerned because the whole point of AI is to have this like non-biased <laughs> opinion, yeah. right? Like these factual things. But yeah, what are your thoughts about that? Totally. I think that now is a great time to distinguish between like AI and machine learning. And so like expert systems are machine learning based, machine learning is basically fancy stats, fancy stats on really large data sets used in ways that we understand exactly why it's working the way that it's working. So we at Barometer have literally dozens of custom machine learning approaches and also deep learning approaches where we're looking at for the differences in machine learning approaches versus deep learning approaches is that the deep learning approaches rely on larger data sets and then the inferences are made in a more abstracted way. But we can still understand like what was the input that triggered the output. And if you ask the same input again, it'll give you a really close answer. It won't be exactly perfect because it's stats. It might be like two decimal points off, but it'll be really close. Whereas if you ask ChatGPT the same question, it can respond in two different ways. So I think fundamentally, there's a difference between the machine learning and the AI side. I think AI in the future could be a really useful tool, but one of the key things to make it more useful is to understand its limitations a little bit better. So some of the limitations that it has are we don't have a lot of visibility into the data that it was actually trained on. We just know that it ended about 2021. The data on the open web that it had access to when training. So mm-hmm. anything that happened after 21, it's a little bit blind to. And to your point, when it doesn't know the answer, it doesn't say, I don't know. It makes something up and says that that's the answer. And so from the point of view of us using it, it's really tough because we have to QA manually what it said. So for example, every single person on our team literally spends at least one hour a week playing with these new solutions and trying to see what we could automate, right? That's always a great idea to engage with these tools. And so we tried to like look up host names. Well, if it doesn't know the host name, it'll just make one up. 
if it doesn't know what the RSS feed is, it'll give you a URL that looks like an RSS feed. But when you go and click on it, there's nothing there. So so weird to me. I don't even get it. It's so weird. And then the worst part is, say you get a result that you don't like. You have no recourse for addressing like how to change the output next time to be closer to what you need it to be. So that's why at Barometer, we're building our own basically large language models and our own deeper approaches because we know what's in our data set because we curated it. And then when we need to retrain because we're getting different results than what we expected, we know exactly which data samples to take out and which new ones to put in and how to keep retraining that system and fine tuning it. Amazing. Amazing. I love it. Well, thank you both so much for being on the program with me today. I really appreciate it. If people want to connect with you, Tamara, where can they find you? Find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the place I'm the most active or email me at Tamara at thebarometer.co or go to thebarometer.co and you can find me there too. Excellent. And Jennifer, how about you? Yeah, also on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter. And um, to find out more about Oxford Road, it's just oxfordroad.com. Well, thank you both so much for being on the program. It was a fascinating conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. I loved it as well. And thank you for listening. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode as much as I have. And ChatGPT is not writing this. I promise I'm actually saying it in real life. But I hope that you will come back and listen to another episode and that you will find tremendous success with podcast advertising. Thanks so much. And we'll catch you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Podcast to Advertising Playbook, your source to a better understanding of the podcast to advertising industry. 